you take your Bibles, open up to Galatians chapter 4. I often tell people that I am a missionary from Ohio. I came here to this crazy city called Kent City. The very first time I had youth group, I called up a kid to say I was going to pick him up, and he said, come over to my, uh, actually at a friend's house I have, I have something I'm working on. So I picked him up, and here he was in fatigues. He had two deer that were hanging from a barn that were dripping blood in these vats. I said, what kind of land did I enter into? Coming from this refined place of Ohio to crazy Michigan, that student was Lance Freeland right there, the one that got up and is now working in Cameroon. God does miracles, I'm telling you. So Lance, I understand what cross-cultural ministry is like, and I am with you. I am with you. Let us uh, open up the Galatians 4, verse 21. We're going to look at the rest of the chapter to verse 31. We are coming to Paul's final argument concerning the law as it relates to grace. As I began studying this last passage, I have to be honest, verse 21 stopped me dead in my tracks. Listen to how it reads. Verse 21. Paul writes, Tell me, you who want to be under the law. Stop right there a second. That right there, that phrase caught me. It says, you who want to be under the law. Paul is saying that some of the people in the Galatian church actually enjoy the law. They want to be under the law. I never really considered this before. All through my teaching on Galatians, it's never crossed my mind that actually some people found rules and traditions as a good way to live. At first glimpse, this was hard for me because I was raised under parents that let me be free. They basically valued the light over duty. But the more I watch and listen to people, the more I realize most people live by duty. Why would anyone want legalism and ritualistic religion to be the way they relate with God? So in my curiosity, I asked a few people who were familiar with Baptist law and religion. And legalism. I asked them why. What possibly could be so compelling to be ruled by the law? Why would the Galatians here be drawn to the severity of Judaism? I was given three reasons why people like the law. Number one, the law is comfortable. It's very comfortable. Expectations under the law are understood and clear. There's no question when it comes to what does God require me. The law lays it out simple and you just obey and you're done. Easy. Over time, people under the law no longer need to think. No wrestling is required. We are creatures of habit. People love routines and patterns, so the law becomes a system or a way of life for many people. It's easy. Second reason, the law makes me feel good about me. If, when I obey and when I do hard things, and especially if I feel a little bit of pain, I start to feel worthy of all the blessings I receive from God. If I'm working hard for God, I should re re be rewarded, right? So it makes me feel good when I work hard. That's the Puritan work, worth, work ethic. The American penchant for giving 110% on the job. It feeds the ego. feeds the flesh. I'm more deserving than those spiritual welfare recipients who only live by faith. I work hard. Third reason is the law confirms that I'm part of the elite. 
tells me I'm one of the chosen. I'm a little bit better than others. I'm special. I can remember when I was about 17, I had a conversation with one of my high school friends, and we were talking about faith. At the time, I was Roman Catholic, and he was a born-again believer, and he's trying to get me to accept Christ. He was really witnessing hard to me. I can remember asking him what he could offer me compared to my 2,000 years of Catholic tradition. We have the Pope. We had the cathedrals, the Vatican, 40 days of Lent, the Advent candle. We had First Communion, Confirmation. We have the liturgy. We have incense, saints, statues, Michelangelo paintings, nuns, priests. We had Maria from the Sound of Music. What do you got? I know I was a hair arrogant when I was 17. I actually told my friend that I felt like when it came to Christianity, Catholics were major league. Protestants were minor league scrubs. I actually said that. But you know what? The more I became acquainted with conservative Baptist culture, I realized they have their own popes, pastors, priests. They have their own traditions, rules, liturgies. They have Christmas cantatas and sanctified hymns. They have their own way of doing church. For many... Being a Baptist has become a comfortable system in which you can work to earn God's favor. Have you ever met people who find their family identity in their religion or in their denomination? And obedience to the law and tradition is the way they live. The more I stop to think on this, the more I realize that this is the norm. Living under the law is the norm. It's not the exception. People who live in freedom and who live in real grace are the exception. That's why Galatians was written. Because not many people live like this. Paul wants us to see that legal codes and man-made tradition are nothing more than dust and shadows, shackles and chains. So he begins his final argument. It's going to be pretty simple today. We're going to walk through it real quick. And really, the title of this is, Who's Your Mama? Who's your mama? That's all you got to ask. Who's your mama? It's very simple. If you look at verse 21, what he's going to do is he's going to use the law against the law to prove to those who use the law that the law is wrong. See, look at verse 21. He says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? So he's using the law against law keepers to show them that the law is no good. And he, he does this by use of an allegory. An allegory is a story that illustrates deeper meaning. Listen to verses 22 to 23. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born in the ordinary way, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of promise. It's the story of Abraham and two women, and he is asking, who's your mama? So here we have Abraham. When it comes to Abraham, every good Jew, and for that matter, every good Christian should know his story. should be familiar. We talked about him four weeks ago, so this is a bit of a review. Poor old Abe didn't have any children. And according to Genesis 15.4, God said, don't worry, you will have an heir from your own loins. However, when we get to Genesis 16, there's a problem. It's been 10 years since that promise. And Sarah, his wife, 
is getting quite old and she hasn't bore any children at all. And if you look at her, her old age was not inspiring much confidence in Abraham. She was probably around 86. It's kind of old to have a baby. So Sarah devised a solution. So here we have Sarah. She decided to borrow a custom from the pagan nation surrounding her. She took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and offered her as a concubinal substitute for Abraham. She actually encouraged her husband to sleep with her maid. That's the point. So in due time, Hagar, she became pregnant and gave birth to a child named Ishmael. Right from the start, nothing good came of this. Sarah had not only contempt for Hagar, but she sent her away to go die in the desert. It's a bad story. It's really not a happy story at all. God had mercy on Hagar and promised her that her son would survive. He'd be the leader of a mighty nation. However, he was not the fulfillment of the promised Abraham. Thirteen years later, God came to Abraham and renewed his original promise. This time he guaranteed Sarah will have a baby. This was insane. She was about 100 years old. But God's promises have teeth no matter how crazy they sound. I'll say that again. God's promises have teeth no matter if it's the craziest promise you ever heard. Nine months later, Sarah had a laughing, bouncing baby boy named Isaac. So what Paul says, here's the story. Verse 24, listen, he said, These things may be taken figuratively. They were historical, but he said you can also take them as an allegory. For the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. So if we go to the next slide, what he's saying is we have two covenants. The first covenant is represented by Hagar. The first covenant is the Mosaic Law. God's codes and laws that came down from Mount Sinai. Listen to verse 25. Now Hagar stands from Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. She represents those codes Moses carried down off the mountain. She represents Judaism after Christ came, an empty, dead religion. Three things we can learn. Number one, Hagar is the representation of impatient human solutions to our problems. Abraham was promised a child. Sarah couldn't deliver, and God didn't seem to care. Thirteen years, and then ten years. About twenty-some years after the very first promise. So Sarah figured, we better do something. And this is the flesh's motto. Don't just sit there, do something. That's the flesh. Do you know how much trouble our impatience gets us into? If God does not answer in our timetable, we feel we must act. But I'll tell you what, along will come consequences. Think of your credit card debt. Have you accumulated your debt because you were patient or because you wanted something right now? The other problem with impatience is that it shows a complete lack of faith in God. Complete lack of faith. We think when we pray or demand from God, He must answer me now. That is the heart of a slave. Someone that doesn't know their dad. Second thing about Hagar, Hagar could only bring into the world children of bitterness and bondage. She didn't have God's blessing. 
And without God's blessing, all you get is conflict, jealousy, rivalry, animosity, and hatred. Do you know who uh, Ishmael became the father of? The Islamic race. If there is any religion based on conflict, jealousy, rivalry, animosity, and hatred, Islam is it. ISIS, one example. When you don't wait for God in your own life, you will not be blessed. There will not be peace, only bitter fruit. Third thing about Hagar, she represents all systems of religious duty and oppression. When you come to God on your own merits, when you come to God on your own hard work, you will feel like an inadequate slave girl, worthless, because you can't do it. Are you jealous of Christians who have joy? Are you bitter? Do you envy? If those are true of you, Hagar might be your mama. She might be your mom. The second woman we have is Sarah. Sarah is the free woman. That's where verse 26 comes in. But Jerusalem that is above, that's Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, is free. She is our mother, as represented by Sarah. Sarah represents faith, freedom, where grace comes directly from God's throne to us. Three things can be learned about Sarah. Number one, she is given miraculous and divine solutions to her problems. What Sarah couldn't accomplish, God did. Because with God, all things are possible. And if He promises you something, He will deliver. Here's God's motto. Flesh is don't just sit there, do something. God's motto is this. Come unto me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Do you know what rest even is? It is a sign we trust God is working for our good, even if we don't see answers immediately. Rest is trust. If God does not deliver on our timetable, we must wait, and when we do, we will reap blessings of the fullness of time. The finite, to finite, impatient creatures, God always seems slow. He's always slow to us. But in His infinite wisdom, He sees everything, and He acts at the exact moment that brings the most blessing. When I see Lance Freeland, I remember the first time I met this guy. He was in high school. We'd go to the clock restaurant all the time. And I would think, nothing good is going to come from this guy. Nothing. I'm kidding you, Lance. I, I like to give him a hard time. But I see this guy now. I would never have dreamed he'd give a presentation like this. Ever. Ever. Wait. And trust. And God's faithfulness. And you will see him do things you can't believe. And Lance knows I, can, I have that freedom to give you a hard time, don't I? I saw the first Lord of the Rings with you. So that's friendship, man. That's friendship. Second, secondly, Sarah bears children of promise. Enjoys the result. When we wait, God blesses. Peace and joy is a sign God's favors upon you. Listen to these verses. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I often take that better to rest in God's presence for a day than working your tail off a thousand days. He'll take care of you. That's where Psalm 127 comes in. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. And those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. The question is, do you believe this? Third thing about Sarah is she represents a life of faith. Sarah is the wife of her husband's love. 
She's the favored mother of God's chosen people. When you come to God by faith in His Son, you can rest assured you are accepted in the Beloved because He sees you as His Son, the one in whom He's well pleased. That's what it means to be in Christ. Are you at peace? Do you experience regular joy? If you do, Sarah is probably your mama. I want you to take a look in the middle of this allegory, verse 27. It says, For it is written, Be glad, O barren woman, who bears no children, break forth, cry aloud. You who have no labor pains, because more are the children of desolate women than those who have a husband. This is talking about the reward of being underneath Mary. This is taken from Isaiah 54. And you might say, so what? It's taken from Isaiah 54. Big deal. Do you know what comes before Isaiah 54? Isaiah 53. Do you know what Isaiah 53 is? You know it. Isaiah 53 is the most explicit Old Testament passage on Christ's death. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We, all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for transgressors. That's how Isaiah 53 ends. And now listen to how Isaiah 54 begins. Be glad. Be glad. Because everything has been paid. God's wrath is satisfied. The Son paid our price. The season of anger is over. We now can be glad. So enjoy. Rejoice. Dance. Sing. Be free. Paul doesn't end there. Listen to what he says in verse 28. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born in the ordinary way persecuted the son born by the power, meaning Hagar and Sarah's kids don't get along. So therefore, get rid of the slave woman and her son. Wow. Stop living by the law. It's slavery. It's bondage. It only brings jealousy and bitterness, and God's blessing will never be attained through the law. This is harsh especially if you're used to living your life under the law, especially if it's comfortable to you, especially if you feel good when you do it, and especially if you get a lot of significance from your religion. You have been invited to be part of something so much better. You are invited to be God's child by faith. I want to close with one more story, one more allegory. And I think this allegory may even be more understood by you than Hagar and Sarah. It's the story of a lady named Cinderella. Have you ever heard of that, that story? Maybe. I don't want you to focus on a pumpkin turned into a coach, a fairy godmother, or glass slippers. I want you to focus on the stepmother for one second and ask the question, why is she so cruel to Cinderella? I read an article in the Atlantic Magazine that talked about the new Cinderella that came out last year. And here's what she says about her cruelty. She says, her cruelty is the result of cruelties her own life heaped upon her. Her husband died. 
She was left to fend for herself in a world that has little appreciation for single mothers. She did what she had to do. Out of social and economic necessity, she married again. This time, though, it was not for love. This time it was to a man who still mourned his own dead wife and who preferred his daughter's company to hers. Desperation gave way to jealousy. Then when Cinderella's father died, hope gave way to hatred. This, to me, is a great explanation what it is like for those who choose to live under the law. They are like the stepmother. They do what they think they have to do to gain God's favor. But it is not based on love. It is the attempt to gain what the flesh can never obtain, a holy God's approval. You can't do it. Desperation then gives way to jealousy. Jealousy of those who seem free to live under grace and then ultimately hope dies under the weight of very real sin because you know the law can never get rid of it, so you're always under it. There's no hope there. But when you stop following the law and you place your faith in God's promises, you will finally find love. Listen to how the article ends. It's great. The article says, Cinderella is the story of a woman who is rewarded for her patient tolerance of abuse. Her salvation, not just marriage, but marriage to a handsome prince. The prince for us is a real person. He is the Son of God's love. His name is Jesus. So I guess I want to end with just one question. Who's your mama? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. I thank you again just for really the, the refreshing testimony of, of Lance and Abby and just hearing their faithful commitment to you, but also... The Word of God is spreading, and it will not return void. Thank you. Thank you for this word we just heard this morning. I pray it will not return void in our hearts. Help those of us who are burdened under the law to let go of it. Help those of us who are under grace to be free. Thank you, Father. In Christ's name we pray.